For the rest of you this morning, uh, go ahead and have your Bible open to two places, Psalm 18 and then first, or excuse me, 2 Samuel uh, 21. Those will be the, the places that we will begin looking at this morning. We are continuing, basically finishing up our summer in the Psalms today as we bring it to a climax, which means that next week we start back picking back up where we left off in the Gospel according to Luke. So we'll be picking back up in Luke and preaching through that expositionally as we bring our summer in the Psalms to an end today. Uh, This summer in the Psalms, uh, we devoted to the Psalms of the life of David. Those, Those individual Psalms that within their superscriptions, we are actually given a detailed account of when these Psalms were written. What was going on, the context of what was happening in David's life when he wrote those psalms. And so really as a supplement, not only have we gotten the blessing of going through the psalms, but we've also had the blessing of of kind of doing a broad survey of the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now it's important to understand that there are two accounts to the life of David in Scripture. There's the Samuel accounts and there's the Chronicle accounts. That's not nothing new with the Bible. The Lord has four accounts. Of his life, right? They're teaching the same story, but from a different perspective. The books of 1st and 2nd Samuel are teaching kingly wisdom from the life of David. It was wisdom that was supposed to be passed on to his sons so that they would bring blessing to the nation. They did not heed that, and so they went into wilderness exile. Chronicles, however, was written at the end of exile. And Chronicles establishes primarily the blessings of the life of David. And the whole point was God is going to be covenantly covenant faithful and he is going to ensure that we will be restored as we come out of exile because of his promises to David. So same life, but different perspectives and why they are writing their accounts. And so we've been going through Samuel a lot of that. And I pray that through this, you have been reading First and Second Samuel. If you following? If you haven't, you're missing out on a lot of good stuff. Um, and so we'll be dealing with Second Samuel twenty-one through twenty-three this morning as well as we look at Psalm eighteen. So last time you guys were together, um, we had seen where Absalom had risen up in rebellion against his father. Now, much of this rebellion, practically all of this rebellion, and we're not going to undo Absalom's own sinful heart. But much of this was due to David's sinfulness. Not only his sinfulness with Bathsheba, but also his sinfulness towards his son Absalom. After Absalom had did what he did in killing his brother Amnon, David had an opportunity to rightly restore his son, but he chose not to. He chose not to go and reconcile with his son at all. Not only that, but his great general Joab brings Absalom back for David and yet again David for another three years while he was in his own house refused to go and speak to Absalom. In other words David provoked his son to wrath. And wrath is what came. Absalom being a strong and handsome man, something that Israel likes in their rulers, just like we saw with Saul, goes after Absalom and now again and we find David in a place that he has come very accustomed to in his life The wilderness. He has been ran into the wilderness. Though he is the enthroned king now, he finds himself with his followers in the wilderness with Absalom basically raising up a coup against him. Find this fascinating about the life of David. 
Prior to his enthronement, he was in the wilderness. He gets enthroned, and then upon his enthronement, he finds himself once again in the wilderness. Both sides of David's enthronement was a wilderness period. And the only time that David finally gets any peace is at the consummation of his reign right before he dies. And you may think that's a fascinating picture, but in reality, what we see within the life of David is precisely what will come with Christ. The old covenant is a picture of Israel and God's people in the wilderness. Christ comes, is the anointed one, and is enthroned through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension into glory. Immediately upon his enthronement, though, Israel rebels against their father in heaven, their king. And it pushes his people once again to the wilderness. And that's where we still are today. We are his wilderness people. And when will we know the final consummate peace? It will be when he comes and consummates his kingdom at the end. So the life of David is merely mimicking what will be the life of Christ. It is typology, foreshadowing what will be. What's amazing is the vast majority of David's psalms are not written when he is enthroned. They are written when he is in the wilderness. They're not written in the place of peace. They're written in the place of trial and tribulation. Ultimately, David's men would overcome Absalom. His great general Joab would kill Absalom even though David asked him not to. And David mourns. He causes the whole nation to go into mourning over the death of Absalom. And Joab, who's probably one of my favorite characters in the Bible... He does what most generals don't have the gall to do, which is he goes to his king and says, you need to knock this off. These men who risked their life for you, you're causing them to mourn whenever they brought victory over a man who hated you? But for David, it's understandable. I think David was less mourning Absalom than he was mourning his own sin that led to it. Because since his fall with Bathsheba, David had lost three sons. An infant son, Amnon, and now Absalom. Living with the consequences of his actions. Nevertheless, David listens to his general, straightens himself up, and he goes out and takes back over his kingdom. But the problem is, is there are still enemies that need to be dealt with. Namely, the one enemy that David can't ever seem to get away with and from, and that is the Philistines. The Philistines have risen up again, and this time they have giants with them again from Gath. So at the beginning of his life, in this call of God, he's having to deal with giants from, and the Philistines, and now here at the end of his reign, he's having to deal with them again. They will be the final enemy before the peace of Israel is fully brought into consummation. A final battle will be waged against the Philistines and these giants. But David will have to sit the battle out. As we will see in a moment, the old warrior king is too weak to fight anymore. And he has to watch other men Remove the oppression of Israel when he can no longer do it himself. And yet in the midst of all of this, the king who can no longer fight can still worship. 
We will see him do precisely that in Psalm 18. I want you to stand for the reading of the first three verses of Psalm 18. Just the first three verses of Psalm 18. A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, from the hand of Saul. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Time is a wicked pickpocket. It takes far more than we are willing to give. And every time we look, we just realize how much more it's taken from us. Every one of us are vulnerable to time. And with all of our technology and everything else, we do everything we can to try and stay off the inevitable, which is the robbery of time. There's a whole storybook about it. It's Peter Pan. The whole point of Peter Pan, that the whole concept of Neverland, is the goal of not growing up. Wendy, who is being forced into this, this young woman-like period of her life, is thrust away to Neverland where she won't have to grow up. Right? And the Lost Boys are there. And the goal of the Lost Boys, who are the, the protagonists, they, they don't grow up. And the wicked, evil people are those grown-up pirates. It's the grown-ups. That's the bad guys. But it's all about time. There's a beast in Neverland who primarily seeks to devour the adult pirates. It's the crocodile. And how is it that that Captain Hook, the leader of the adults, how is it that he knows that the crocodile is coming? It's the ticking of the clock. And, And the symbolism is clear. Time is coming to devour him. No matter how much you run, time is coming to devour you, which is why so much of the movie is centered around the Big Ben, the clock. It's all about a battle for time. Time comes to devour us all. Time is a terrible thing, and it's something that we often try to run against. But time also does something very powerful. When we come to the realization of our own mortality and truly come to number our days... There is a great sense of clarity that comes when you know time is short. One of the great privileges of being a pastor is being able to spend a lot of time with those who know that their hours are numbered. And to experience the level of wisdom and clarity that comes from such a soul who knows it's time is short. When our bodies begin to fail and our strength retreats and our breaths shorten, there's something about the state of our soul that profoundly sharpens in that moment. We will all 
be the prey of time at some point. And what was true for us was true for David. The warrior king, the mighty hero of Israel, the the giant slayer, realized that there was one enemy that he could not beat. And it was time. It was time. Yet in the midst of this warrior fading in his strength, we see in this final song that we have of David, a worship and a wisdom that grew all the greater, though his body grew weaker. Indeed, as his outer self wasted away, his inner self was being renewed in great ways. This is David's swan song. This is what we find in Psalm 18. And in order for us to understand the beauty and the power of what made him sing this song that he had actually written years before, what makes him sing this song? What is it about this song that pours into David's heart in this moment when the reality of his frailty and his weakness as he watches other men get the glory for battle? What is it about this song that flooded his heart to sing? And so, as we have throughout, we need to understand the context of what's going on here and to watch it unfold itself to fully grasp the fullness of this psalm. So the first place that I want us to look is 2 Samuel 21, uh, beginning in verse 15. And we see here, the warrior king fades. The warrior king fades. We read here in... 2 Samuel 21, 15-21. When there was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary, and Ishbibanab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jer, Origem, and the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath. Where there was a man of great stature with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Here we see a fascinating conclusion to the warrior king. We are told that as he goes to war with the Philistines, and specifically those of Gath, these giants, that he grew weary. The idea is not of a a faintness of heart, but a weakening of the body. So much so that he is literally pinned down by one of these great warriors, these great giants, and he has to be rescued by Abishai. And after he is rescued and he gets this real close call to death, 
David's mighty men, his army, basically tell him, you can't fight anymore. Because if you go out and you die, you quench the lamp of Israel. You quench our light. You can't die. You no longer get to be the general that leads us to battle. You will be the king who watches from a distance. And I love it because the writer of Samuel seeks to give David his credit by the end by saying that all of these giants fell at the hand of David. It was his lead. He was king. But throughout the story you see over and over again that it is other men now who are are removing the oppression of Israel. The giants of Israel. I even love this one little clue. Jer or Jim, Elhanan, a Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. Where's David from? He's from Bethlehem. And now he's not only watching this great giant slayer that was renowned for the killing of Goliath, that they sung songs about because of how strong and mighty of a warrior he was, he now has to watch other men be giant slayers. And maybe you've been there as a man as you get older. And the things that you felt that were impressive that you once did, you watch other other young men start doing it better than you did. And they're stronger than you. And they're faster than you. And everything about it, you as a man that once gave you purpose and meaning and value, maybe as a, as a woman that once gave you purpose and meaning and value, that those things now are slipping away and they're fading and you just can't do it anymore. David is found sitting on the sidelines watching the oppression of Israel be removed And he's doing nothing. David in this moment comes to the powerful and profound reality that you know what? Maybe I'm no longer the hero of Israel. But perhaps David was come to an even greater realization Not that he was no longer the the hero of Israel. But that he never was the hero of Israel. That the reason that he slayed those giants and killed all those warriors was less about him and more about the God he belonged to. In his weakness, David gains the fullest clarity regarding the true source of where his strength always came from. It wasn't until he was weak that he really came to the fullest realization of what made him strong his whole life to begin with. It was always the Lord. The Lord is the one who slayed that giant. The Lord is the one who removed the oppression of Israel. The Lord is the one who gave me victory over the battles. It was always the Lord. It is often unfortunate, but true, that until we reach our weakest places, we don't realize that it was God who was carrying us along the whole time to begin with. 
Which is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10, The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, it's in this moment of weakness that David, here in a moment, we will see in this beautiful song of praise of Psalm 18. It is when he's at his weakness that he gets the greatest sense of clarity. It was never about me. It was always him. Everything I have was him. Everything I've done was him. It's always Him. It's all of Him. I believe that this is one of the reasons why the Lord in the fall allowed for the weakening of the body. Was that as a means of grace, He would have our bodies weaken and groan and lose their strength so that our souls through greater clarity of weakness might pour out and long for an eternal sense of life. A heavenly body, a spiritual glorified body that would last forever, that would not be subject to the the frailty and that great pit pocket of time. That perhaps the weakening of our flesh was given to us as a means of being a purifying agent for our spirit. And I think that that's what Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by, the, by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, there's two ways that this is applied. First, individually and personally. The weakening of the flesh. The the pickpocket of time that robs us of what seems to be so much is a means of grace given us by God to go towards Him, to look for Him to that which is eternal, which that can't be taken away, which is outside of time which can never fall apart or weaken or grow weary. And yet it's only found in Christ. But not only is it an individual application, but it's also corporate. Notice, ever since David's established a physical house, it's been a nightmare. The house is always in shambles. It's always under attack. Because that house was not the final house. 
It was pointing to the eternal one. A house and home which is not built by the hands of men, but that of God. And that is true for this world around you. we, We live in a world where so many people want to take this world and turn it into heaven. But every time that man has tried to bring heaven down on his own terms, he's only brought hell up. It's because this world is not our final abode. A new heavens and new earth will be. This is a staging ground, a wilderness, a house that's constantly under attack. That's to cause us to look forward to an eternal one and a greater one. So don't see the weakness and the frailty of yourself and the world around you as some dark punishment from God. See it as a means of grace that this is only temporary and a means to prepare you and to point you to an eternity with Him. Let hindsight be the reference guide to your life, pointing out how God has carried you along every step of the way. That's the gift of hindsight. It's to look back on your life and say, He was always there. And this is the great glory of old age, especially as a saint, is to look back on the infinite amount of times in your life that you thought you were done for. There was no hope. And God carried you through. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 4. Even to your old age, the Lord says, I am He. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. That's the gift of hindsight. Is that when you get to the end of your life, the final song of every saint is, it was always Him. It was never me. It was always Him. He is the hero of my story. I'm not. That is the swan song of every saint. And it was the swan song of David. In this moment, as he watches other men attain the glory of victory, the gray-haired and aging warrior king comes to one of the most important realizations that he ever has. Yahweh is the hero of Israel. Not David. And though I am his anointed, David understands now more than he ever has, I am not the king who is going to usher in the everlasting kingdom. There is yet a greater king to come. And that is seen fully in the song that comes to David's heart in Psalm 18. And here we see that though David's body and body weakens, his spirit does not. And we see the worshiping king sing in Psalm 18. You can turn with Psalm 18. Now, now in 2 Samuel 22, we literally are told that these words came to the heart of David to sing. And Psalm 22, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 22 is nothing more than an almost verbatim 
account of what we have in Psalm 18. But we're going to go to Psalm 18 because we see the fullness expression of when David penned this psalm. And most historians, most biblical scholars believe that Psalm 18 was written uh, probably right after the death of Saul at some point and right during when, when, when David was going to bring the ark into Jerusalem. So at some point during that period when he was preparing for his enthronement, David writes Psalm 18. But Psalm 18 becomes this theme song, this banner that is constantly played in the heart of David. It is a song that he sings to himself over and over again. And it is a song that inspires scripture, has him singing as one of the final songs of his life. And this brings to the question is, do you have a particular song of worship that sticks with you? Is there a song, a hymn, that you just find yourself in moments of clarity, in moments of trial, uh, moments of difficulty, or just in going through your life, that this song always seems to just pour forth into your heart? I know mine is, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I love that song. Morning by morning's new mercy I see. All I've needed, thy hand is provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Do you have a song like that that you perpetually sing in your life of praise and worship? In many ways, it seems that this psalm was David's song of praise. You may ask, well, what is it about that song? We need to understand. I think it's because David, as he grew older, especially at this moment when now he was no longer the warrior king, had come to the fullest realization of what Psalm 18 had actually been about when he was inspired to write it. The first three verses of Psalm 18 provide the basis, really the, the thesis of the entire psalm. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. Notice this opening stanza and everything that it has in it. I love the first verse. I love you, O Lord. Oh, it is one thing to know the Lord, but to love Him is all the greater. But to know Him is to love Him. But notice what it is that He refers to, and He sings this song in the moment of His weakness. I love you, O Lord, my strength. You're my strength. And notice this constant now just melee of, of descriptions that He gives the Lord. You're my strength. My rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my refuge, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold. Now we see it. What is it about this psalm that pours into David's heart in the midst of this moment when his bodily weakness gets the best of him? It's the reality. It's always been you, God. You've always been my strength. And you'll continue to be my strength. You are the reason for our salvation. It was never me. It was always you, God. 
The basic theme of Psalm 18 is it's all about you, God. The singular testimony of David's swan song is God did it and He's going to be faithful to keep doing it. This psalm, David realizes now, especially as he's come to the end of his life, was less about him and more about a greater king to come. This psalm is not fully Davidic. It's messianic. And David sings it because I believe now he is singing a song not of expectation for self, but of faith in a greater David to come. And we see that in the descriptions that he provides. There are four powerful notes that are struck in this psalm of David. And the first thing that he points to is he points to the depth of God's deliverance. The depth of God's deliverance. We see this in verse 4 through 19. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From His temple, He heard my voice and my cry to Him reached His ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because He was angry. Smoke went up from His nostrils and devouring fire from His mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from Him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under His feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of his hand. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out in a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This is a powerful Poetic picture of deliverance. Because you're probably reading that and going, when the heck did God do that? I didn't see that part in Samuel. You know, coming down and bringing cherubs with him. But this language that David is using is, the big term is theophonic or theophonic language. Theophany just simply means a divine appearance. God's appearance. And so what David is saying here is that God is intimately there when we are delivered. God is intimately present in the deliverance of His people. And the fullness of who He is is put into the deliverance of His own. In other words, where God is not present, there can be no deliverance. God is not present. There can be no deliverance. He is there. Wherever there is deliverance, God's there. He is intimately there. In every battle, God was there. In every fight, God was there. Every sword lash, God was there. That's what David's saying here. It was always Him. 
It wasn't the strength of my sword. It wasn't the power of my my might. It wasn't my cunningness in battle. It was always the immense presence of God, the imminent presence of God that delivered me from all my enemies. David uses language of being trapped in the cords of death, in the, the bowels of Sheol. It's the same language that Jonah uses. Describing his being cast into the sea of chaos, of despair. David is saying, it was the Lord who delivered me. And He delivered him by His coming, by His presence. But if you're reading this, you learn, you know pretty quickly that this language is speaking to something much greater. A greater deliverance of a greater Davidic king who truly was in the belly of the grave. This symbolic deliverance of David is a picture of the actual deliverance of Christ. This great passage on deliverance, David realizes, is pointing to a greater king who will be delivered from the grave. And how would He be delivered? Through a bodily resurrection. Peter presses this connection with David hard in his sermon at Pentecost. Constantly, Peter is pointing to these messianic psalms and saying, this couldn't happen with David. Why? David's still in the grave. You can go see it. But a greater David has come. And he has been rescued from the grave in utter deliverance. We see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23 to 24. Peter says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised them up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is incredible. Peter, seeing these Davidic Psalms, recognizing what's happening, sees in them that David's messages of deliverance, which were poetic and symbolic of him, were actually true and fulfilled in Christ. He was the one who God raised up from the grave and brought him forth out into the open for many to see. This is the essence of the resurrection. And it is the great truth of God's deliverance of Christ from the grave that ensures every single one of us to be delivered. Because like I said, you can't be delivered where God isn't present. And in order for the host of souls that were all at enmity of God, including you and me, in order for us to be fully delivered into the direct presence of God, God had to come down. And He did in Christ. He came down on the wings of cherub, coming and being born of a virgin, living the life we could not live, dying the death we should have died, going to the grave where we belong, and bursting forth in glorious victory so that we too could know that we are delivered. 
This is precisely what Paul speaks on in Ephesians 2 when he says, Among whom all we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by children nature of, uh, like, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And I love it, what what David ends with. He delivered me because he delighted in me. If you've been delivered in Christ today, then I want you to know there's only one reason. God delights in you. And he does so of his own free purposes. There's nothing in you worthy of delighting. I have to tell you, break your news there. I don't mean to bring the bearer bad news. But there's only reason in us naturally as, as, as children of our nature that would bring the abhorrence and wrath of God. And yet in infinite mercy, He delighted in you. And because He delighted in you, He delivered you in Christ. What an incredible reality for Christ and for us. The second note struck in the song, David now moves from the death of God's deliverance to the perfection of God's ways. We see this in verse 20 through 30. He says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me and His statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before Him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. So David here, right, went back when he originally penned this song, is speaking on God's perfect justice. And the righteousness in which he operates. Protecting the humble and the righteous while bringing down the haughty and the wicked. Basically, this denoting the the balanced scales of God as the just judge of heaven. But these words, first written by David after the demise of Saul, don't quite fit well with the story as they once did. You can imagine as these words that David had penned earlier in his life, you can almost see him flashing back to his youth as this song is playing in his heart. That those words that he once penned of his own righteousness and the cleanness of his hands, that those words don't taste as sweet as they once did. Knowing all of the things that have happened in the past several years after his fall from the Lord. And in the midst of this, once again, David has to look through to his own failure and to another king to come who will be perfect in his righteousness. 
God would maintain the covenant based upon the full righteousness of a Davidic king. But that king would not be David. Nor would it be Solomon or Rehoboam, Jehoiachin, Josiah, none of them. It would be King Jesus who would be the perfect righteousness by which God could ensure the full security and covenant blessings upon His kingdom. For in the Davidic covenant, it was clearly established, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. If the king falls, the kingdom will go with it. And so a greater king who truly would maintain the perfect righteousness of God. But how could David still sing this? And the answer is because David would receive a righteousness. And he would be judged by that righteousness. But that righteousness would no longer be his own. It would be the one that he now looked forward to in faith. In God's perfect ways, he did provide a way to glory. A way for the kingdom to stand forever. And that came through Jesus. And because of His perfect righteousness, a righteousness which by faith would be imputed to His entire household, the people of His kingdom could be preserved forever in kingdom glory. As Paul writes in Romans 3, 23-26, For all have sinned, And fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a satisfaction, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance He passed over former sins like David's sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, God is perfect in all of His ways. But no one's righteous. Not even David. So God is to to maintain perfection in His ways, yet have a people and a kingdom that lasts forever. He will need a perfectly righteous king who not only lives the perfect righteousness necessary to impute to the kingdom to last forever, but he needs a perfect king who can stand as a substitute and have the fullness of the sins of the kingdom placed upon him. Enter Christ. And thus, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him, that is, the Father made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, That in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So, God is perfect in His ways. Because He provided the only way by which sinners could be saved. By which David could be saved. By which David could sing this song and know that the Lord would care for him forever. Because the Lord did forgive him. And He did create in Him a new heart and cleanse Him of His iniquity. But the only way that He could do that would be 900 years later through His perfect Son, Jesus Christ.
and provide the righteousness that David now looked forward to. God is perfect in His ways. He is deep in His deliverance. And thirdly, David says, now note the power of God's provision. We see this in verse 31 through 42. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who has equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. And your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs against me and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. Here David is speaking upon the perfect provision of God in the battle. It was always God who gave him exactly what he needed to achieve the victory. He is indeed Jehovah Jireh and there is no other God but Yahweh. He is perfect in his provision. What David is saying Anytime I found myself in place of need, there you were. And you always gave me exactly what I needed. There was no time that you left me without. You were always there, always on time, exactly when I needed. Whether I was on mountaintop or valley low, you were there and you gave me precisely what was needed in the hour. He is that for you. Christ is that for you. No matter what battles you're facing today, God will give you precisely what you need. He will give you precisely what you need. But notice, when God gave David what he needed, David actually fought with it. Are you looking at God's provision and leaving it on the mantle? Or are you picking it up to fight? A weapon is no good if it stays sheathed. The gospel is no good if you stay silent. Prayer is of no power if you will not speak. There is no heart of prayer. Worship means nothing if you have no heart to bring with it. God has provided each and every one of us with precisely what we need to overcome the battles of life because He's already overcame the greatest one in Christ. Satan's sin of death have been utterly defeated in Christ. You must need to go fight in the provision you've already been given. Go and serve and live in radical service to the Lord and in service to others. And just like the disciples learned on the day when Christ fed the 5,000, when they looked to the Lord and they gave to others and they had 12 baskets overflowing for themselves, what was the story? What was the meaning? When you live your life in radical service to the Lord and to others, there will always be leftover for you. He is perfect in His provision. But will you fight with the weapons He's already given you? And stop trying to use the weapons of this world and wonder why you keep losing. 
He has given you the provision because He is perfect in His provision. And then the final note, David reflects on the constancy of God's faithfulness. Verse 43 to the end. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. Who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king. And shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David, and his offspring forever. Here, David, closing this psalm realizes that every victory that he he had, every enemy that he ever overcame, every obstacle that he was able to overcome was due to one primary point. The covenant faithfulness of God. It was all because he is faithful to his word and to his own. If you are in covenant with God, you need no more assurance. It's as good as done. But for David, it's important to note all these things that he just proclaimed about the covenant of faithfulness of God have not come true with him. There's no foreign nations bowing to David. He can barely get his own to do that. There's no strange peoples coming to him. Yeah, he had a small, small sojourning band of warriors that came from him from different parts of, of Israel and places like that. There was a time when he worked and served as a Philistine, but notice in the Philistines, when he was there, he was a servant to them. So David, in this final psalm, as the gray-haired man looks over the battlefield and sees his enemies finally defeated, where he was not able to lift the sword, realizes that yes, he is God's anointed. But there is a greater anointed king to come. A Christ. A Mashiach. A Messiah. To whom all the nations will bow. And in Romans chapter 15, Paul takes this verse directly at verse 49 and 50. And he applies it to Christ. Romans chapter 15, verse 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Notice, this is why Jesus had to be born of Israel. This is precisely what I'm saying. He became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, his faithfulness, his faithfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs like David. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. That's David's father. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So by the by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In other words, every promise given to David and the patriarch. All the faithfulness of God and those promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. He is the anointed king of whom David speaks to who all the nations will come and sing praise to. And of whom all of God's enemies and his people's enemies will be subdued under. David realizes those psalms that he wrote in Psalm 2, in Psalm 16, in Psalm 110. This psalm that was never originally messianic, the very last song he sings, he sees how it all points to him. It all points to the greater David to come. And so what gives David hope is not that he is weak. Not that he knows that his kingdom will eventually come to an end with himself. What gives David hope is that his God is faithful and a greater king will come. And that king came and his name is Jesus. And Paul says this in Philippians 2, 8 and 11, being found in human form, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of depth. Remember the depth of his deliverance, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. The final song of David is clear. It's all about God who is perfect in his deliverance, perfect in his ways, perfect in his provision and perfect in his faithfulness. And every one of those realities are consummated fully and completely in the life, work, death, resurrection, and reign of God the Son, Jesus Christ, the true, everlasting, eternal Davidic King. Psalm 18 was more than a final song to sing for David. Psalm 18 was David's testimony. It was always you, God. And what is the final song for David? My friend, is the final song for every believer. It was always you, God. From start to finish. David closes with some final words. We see in Psalm 23, the wise king speaks. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. These are the last words. The oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. The word is on my tongue. That's one of the greatest texts on inspiration that you'll find. Biblical inspiration. David is saying all these words that you've heard in the Psalms, they are the words of God. They are precisely the words of God. As men spoke, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1, 21. The word, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For d- does not my house stand so with God? 
For He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will He not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. These are the last words of David. And by last words, they're not his dying words. These are simply the last words of which he was inspired to speak. And these words are words of wisdom that were meant to be left for his sons to follow. And what's the message? David wants his sons to know that it is only with God that you will find victory. If you rebel against Him, you will crumble. And this house will fall apart. This house is with God. And if you take it anywhere else or attach it to anything else, it will fall apart. That was the closing words to his son. David knows that his, weak, his weakness will no, allow him, no longer allow him to bring a warrior's victory. But victory was never established because he was a warrior. David learned that true victory for the people of God doesn't come through being warriors. It comes through being worshiping people who are wise in their doings. We are to be worshipers who are wise in all that we do. No matter how bad of a life you've led, as long as there is breath in you, God calls His people to be worshipers and those who pass wisdom on to the next generation. So maybe you're an aging saint here. And I'm not looking at anyone. But maybe you feel like an aging saint. And maybe you're seeing a lot of youth coming into Hillside. New faces, young families, passion, excitement, and urgency. And that gets you excited, but you feel like you're on the outside looking in. You don't feel strong. You can't do the, the service projects you once did. You don't feel apt to, to go into the ministries and devote as much as you had once to them because you're, you're just weary and tired. Hear me today, precious saint. You are so very much needed. And it doesn't matter how weak your body grows. There's two areas that you will always be needed in the people of God. And that is in your worship and your wisdom. So be like David and pour it out even when your body seeks to fail you. Because we always need worship and wisdom. Worship and wisdom must permeate the people of God in spite of whatever weaknesses we face. David's son Solomon would also leave a closing word of wisdom. And you can go see that in Ecclesiastes 12. But we're going to close now with some lessons to learn from the life of David. These are five takeaways. And there could have been a hundred of these. And I hope you've taken away a lot. These are five. And I... I get to kind of wrap this thing up with a bad bow, but I'll try to do this the best I can. What are the five lessons learned from Psalms in the life of David? Number one, communion with God should be constant in spite of our circumstances. What was it that made David a man after God's own heart? Is that he was always in communion with God. It didn't matter if he was messed up, bad, good, sad, winning or losing. 
David was always with God. I'm, I'm always talking with him. He's, there's always a direct line of communion for David. And notice, when Saul sinned, what was the thing that he said to Samuel? Don't take the kingdom from me. But when David was rebuked by Nathan, what was David's cry? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't take your communion from me. You can have the kingdom back, but i got to keep you. The life of the believer is one of constant communion with God. Is that you? Is it just natural that everything about you is just going to God? I'm talking with God whether it's good or bad, deep or ugly. We're having a conversation right now, God. That's got to be the life of a believer. Constant communion with God in spite of whatever circumstances you are. And it's when you least wish to go to God that you most need to be with Him. Secondly, the wilderness serves to both produce and purify our worship. The vast majority of the Psalms come during David's time in the wilderness, not in the peace of Jerusalem. Because it is the wilderness that purifies and produces our worship. Why? Because it is there that we realize we are most dependent on God for survival. Notice when God brought Israel out of Egypt, what did He tell, they, what did he tell Moses? Why am I delivering them? So that they can go and worship Me rightly. In the wilderness. In the wilderness. Why? Because out there, they will know only one thing, and that is the provision of God. The constant, immense mercies of God that are poured out new every morning. So it's no wonder we are called a wilderness people. That is no wonder that we are called exiles, pilgrims, sojourners in this world. We are in the wilderness, church. And it is because the wilderness is a place of preparation and purity for the land to come. And right now is when our worship is being refined. So don't see trials and pains and sorrows as reason to fret. Find in them reasons to worship. Because there is always reason to worship. Thirdly, our sin is great, but grace is greater. Our sin is great, but grace is greater. There is one reason that God did not give up on David. And it's grace. It was grace in choosing him, grace in delivering him, grace in anointing him, grace in saving him, grace in preserving him. From start to finish, the life of the believer has a singular note, and it is grace. It is grace unimaginable. God, if you are in Christ, hear me, brothers and sisters. God will not give up on you. Maybe you feel like you're not hearing it. Maybe you feel like it's over and it's done for. And I don't know how to get out of this rut. My friend, the same God on the mountain is still God in the valley. And His promises are still true to you in Christ. And His grace is greater than your sin. So turn back to Him. Say with David, Create in me a new heart. Cleanse me. Forgive me of my iniquity. 
and walk in the freedom of forgiveness and the hope that His covenant faithfulness can give you forever. Four, the eternal Davidic King has come in Jesus and He will never fall or fade from the throne. This King will never grow weary. This King will never be sidelined for the battle. He's already won. The victory is already sure and guaranteed. The promises of God have found all of their fulfillment in Him. And what's so great about knowing this, that Jesus is the hero of the story. You really need to believe that today. Because the moment that you realize that Christ is the hero of your story, you'll stop trying to be what you were never called to be. Husbands who bear the burden of so much in your home and the life. And I know what it's like. And constantly fretting like you're not doing enough for your family. Mothers who feel like you're not doing enough for your children. That you're not giving enough. That you're always wanting to do more. Stop it! You're not the hero of the story. You have one. Rest in the freedom and peace that He gives you. In the rest that He gives you. And trust Him to be what you were never called to be. And what you never can be. He will be the hero. Let Him be. And the greatest way that you can ever, the greatest thing that you can ever give your family, it's not so much more of you, but more of Him. More of Christ. Give them the true hero of the story. That will be the greatest gift you ever give them. Maybe they need less of more of me, but they will never need less of Him. He is the story. So let that take the pressure off you and surrender it all to Him. And then finally, our final point. The swan song of every saint will be a song of absolute victory. David's final song is a song of thanksgiving and triumph. And my friend, every dying saint will go on to forever sing the song of victory. It doesn't matter what blues you find yourself singing in this life. There will be nothing but celebration in the life to come. Nothing but victory which will mark your tongue. When we went through Revelation, every song sung by the great multitude in heaven was always a song of victory. There was never a song of, it wasn't, it's not that great up here as we thought it was going to be. It's always a song of incredible victory. And this is the last of the songs. Revelation 19, 6-8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the final song of the saints. And as they sing there the marriage supper of the Lamb, it is a song of preparation for the fact that the consummatory peace of the eternal David has now come. And unlike the, the first David, that kingdom peace will never be lost again in the age to come.
we will only know the sweet songs of victory. The last song of David was basically, how great is our God? And that's exactly what our last song will be also. But now, how about we go and live the reality that He is great, starting right now and forever. Does the world know you serve a great God? Let your lives show nothing less. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this summer in the Psalms. We thank you so much for the ways that we have seen what communion with you looks like in our lives. Lord, I I pray that if there is someone here who has not felt that communion, who has not experienced the peace that you alone can give, that doesn't know what it is to be able to come to you, whether they are on a mountaintop or whether they're in the valley, when it feels like everything is against them, God, I pray that You will pour Your Spirit upon them. They may see what it is to know full communion with You. Perhaps the reason they haven't known that communion, God, is because they have yet to know Christ. Lord, I pray this morning they will see that the only hope that they have in life of knowing victory is found in Christ alone. That the only hope they have of having sin forgiven and guilt removed and shame taken away is found in the perfect salvation of Christ. Lord, let us live a life of the victory You've already given us. Walking in the provision that You daily provide for us in the immense mercies of Your perfect grace towards Your people. And God, when we struggle with feelings of inadequacy, feeling like we're not doing enough, we are, we're not making enough changes we're, that we need to do more and be more. Let us look to Christ and see that we're not the hero of the story. That He is. And let us be able to rest in that so that our actions, rather than trying to obtain that which has already been given, will simply be nothing more than outworkings of thanksgiving and joy and and a recognition of the provision that you are going to provide your people. Why? Because you delight in us, Father. You delight in us. For that, we praise you. We praise you. So God, I pray that what this summer in the Psalms has done for us is that it has made us consummate worshipers. That we see what a life of perpetual worship looks like regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And Lord, let the song of victory ever play on our hearts. When darkness sets in in the world, when confusion and chaos is all around us, when perversions are rampant, let the song of Your victory always be upon our heart. And that when we see how great the trials of the world are, we can sing of how much greater You are. For You are great and good. We love You, O Lord, our strength, our rock, our refuge, our ever-present help, our fortress. For we called out to You and You have given us salvation. 
Lord, help us praise you better, live for you better. Help us be a people of worship and wisdom. And let us not wait to the end for that clarity to come, but teach us to number our days now that we might redeem the time for the days are evil. Living for you as wise, not as unwise. For your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom. Until the day you come to consummate it in peace. May we live for you in all things. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.